Today on the Daily Scoop podcast from the Scoop News Group, tread carefully, Congress, with new cyber and FISMA legislation. I'm always skeptical of when we put things into law around the regulation of things, because once you put it into law to change it, when situation changes, you require more law. Climate isn't someone else's job anymore. It is synchronous with your mission and with your day job to worry about these things. This is about how do you do your job in the new way and continue to be more effective. And a long list to consider when you build your back to the office plan. It's not just about health and safety. It's also about the new capabilities for getting work done, the struggle to attract and retain talent, the choices that employees have, the choices that they desire, and quite likely, probably a tightening of budgets. It's Thursday, February 10th, 2022. Welcome to the Daily Scoop podcast. Every afternoon, you'll learn what's going on today in government. I'm the host of the Daily Scoop podcast, Francis Rose. Here's what's happening now. Agency acquisition leaders would have to share best practices under a bill that's headed to President Biden. The bill includes provisions to increase small business contracting in the federal government. One of the Senate sponsors, Senator Gary Peters, says the bill would let small businesses compete on a, quote, level playing field with bigger companies. A former mayor of New York City is President Biden's choice to lead the Defense Innovation Board. Michael Bloomberg will take over the board, the Pentagon's restarting after a hiatus. The Pentagon announced eight other boards will restart operations, too. You can read more about these headlines and lots of other stories at fedscoop.com. IT Mod Week is less than three weeks away now. It's coming February 28th through March 4th. More than 100 events will happen all over the city with lots of government and industry speakers. You can find a link to learn more in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. New cyber legislation in Congress combines aspects of three bills that the Congress has already considered. The new bill codifies FedRAMP, gives CISA reporting authority, and reforms FISMA. John Zangardi is president and CEO of Red Horse Corporation. He's former chief information officer at the Department of Homeland Security. John, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. This bill, according to my colleague John Hewitt-Jones, combines the Cyber Incident Reporting Act, the Federal Information Security Modernization Act of 2021, and the Federal Secure Cloud Improvement and Jobs Act. It all sounds fine. What impact would it have on people like you who are chief information officers at agencies? Welcome, John. Thank you for having me here. It's a pleasure. Uh, it has meaning, and that's the first thing. And I think it's good in that it starts aligning the different cybersecurity uh, pieces of legislation. So let's keep in mind, as a CIO, we're already used to reporting breaches to Congress. And as a DHS CIO, because I was part of the DHS family, I would routinely engage CISA if there was a cybersecurity event. So for me, at least as a former DHS CIO, I would view this as just formalizing it. For other CIOs, I think it makes it clear that you need to share this information with CISA, and that's important. My concern about all of this, and it's not clear from the legislation as I read it, would be timelines, the report format, and really what constitutes uh, a cybersecurity attack. So the question in terms of how much work that we're put on the back of the CIO depends on what is required and when. So, so borrowing from my old aviation days in the Navy, when there was an incident with an aircraft and you realize that the first thing you did within five minutes is make a phone call up the chain of command, right? You got the information out. Everything you're probably reporting is wrong at that point, <laughs> but there wasn't a lot of clutter. And then 
there were requirements for reports and follow-on reports in a more formalized fashion. And, you know, as you get further from an incident, things become clear. So I'm not suggesting they leverage the aviation approach, but I think there are lessons learned there out in previous government uh, events such as this that we can leverage to make this workable and easy for a CIO to report to CISA. The challenge to me is, as I read John's piece on fedscoop.com, there's a lot of stuff there that people are supposed to be doing already, and I'm using air quotes around the word supposed to. Apparently, they're not because uh, these members led by uh, Senator Peters and Senator Portman think that it's necessary to codify it in law, but um, things like critical infrastructure owners and operators, federal agencies reporting to CISA, you know, that's something we were kind of expecting, but I guess it's not happening. What good does legislation do to change that? And how much of that has to be cultural? How much of that has to be some activity that some organization in the government takes on on its own? So I'm always skeptical of when we put things into law around the regulation of things, because once you put it into law to change it, when situation changes, you require more law. And that's very difficult to make happen. So I prefer the granting of executive authority to say CISA, where it would have the authorities enshrined in its charter for it to develop the best approaches to regulate critical infrastructure, to require CIOs to report on breaches, to report on ransomware attacks. I think that more flexible approach will allow things to flow more smoothly. And Francis, you and I know the world of cybersecurity has, is constantly changing. IT is it's a moving target. So to put anything in law with specific requirements would be a mistake. But to put something in law that strengthens the authority of an agency to compel people to do the right things in terms of reporting and all that is important. The page I would take is from U.S. Cyber Command. You know, I worked in DOD as the acting DOD CIO and the Navy CIO. And Cyber Command has authority, right? It's a military organization to compel the services to do something, right? And that's what's important. And there's also that chain of uh that chain of command sort of responsibility that I think really makes it a more fulsome thing. So importing that model into this legislation would be incredibly helpful, I think, for CISA. So you, I, I, I understand your point about not wanting to make the legislation too prescriptive. Does that pertain to one of the most controversial pieces of this? One of the reasons that they've been revisiting this legislation over and over again is the, the amount of time that an agency should have to report a cyber incident to CISA. Uh, I think the one piece of legislation said seven days and another was, I think, three. I, I might not have that right. But I, from the way that you described your aviation example, it sounds like the best idea is like five minutes after you find out that there's a problem and then update with information as quickly as possible. And this idea of days and days doesn't sound desirable. Well, to me, days and days does not sound desirable. And I've, I've listened to some of the feedback from industry, and I could sympathize with their concerns. And, you know, if I was running a company, the second I report this to CISA, I would be expecting scrutiny. So they probably want to approach things with certainty. So deciding what is a substantial cybersecurity attack should be put on the back of CISA. That should never be detailed. But once they reach that threshold and the, the organization recognizes that they should be compelled to short timelines, but not with a complicated format, the initial call, if you will, or the initial message 
should be pretty rapid, should occur rapidly after that, that recognition occurs. The, uh, what would you like to see in this legislation that would make it helpful, make it constructive for a CIO at an agency level? And I'm not suggesting that it's not now. My fear is, you know, I've heard the complaints for 15 years about FISMA and how it's a box checking exercise. And, and I, what I'm going after, I guess, John, is what this legislation could include or how it could be written so that it contributed to the security of the networks of the agencies rather than just being an exercise that you have to complete in order to show it to somebody. So, so Francis, you, you, you accurately summarize what FISMA can be. <laughs> it could be a block checking exercise which doesn't necessarily help you get to a better cybersecurity posture. So, so let's talk a little bit about it. So one step I would recommend is I like CISA having more authority to compel federal agencies to do the right things in terms of reporting and working with them. But I'll tell you, one of the problems many CIOs have at the, at the department level or at a component or agency level is funding, right? Funding is important. So when Congress is looking at money, money needs to go to these CIOs so they can modernize. But let me be more specific to the act. So FedRAMP is a part of this. And you could go out and talk to a lot of uh, companies out there that really want to get into the federal market. And they look at the FedRAMP process. It's onerous. It could take a year. It is not easy. And there's a line to get in it. So it needs to be streamlined. It needs to be sped up. They should probably focus on steps that would improve the funding and the ability of the FedRAMP organization to move through the process companies interested in doing business with the government. There's another piece here. You know, I worked in acquisition with the Navy for a very long time, and you're familiar with the FAR and all the processes in aviation. That slows things down. In many cases, all an I, all the CIO is doing is buying commercial IT and integrating it into their systems. The acquisition process has to be sped up. Congress should look at the FAR and look at ways of streamlining it. OTAs are wonderful. But I would also look at making sure that CISA establishes metrics that are useful. So there's a lot of tools out there that are enablers from zero trust, cross-domain solutions, asset management with you know validation sorts of approaches, endpoint security. But let's just take asset management. Can we not have a metric? And there are plenty of tools out there that can help you decide, hey, what's out there on-prem? What's out there in the cloud? What's out there in mobile devices? What's the state of the software on it? And measure that. That's real time. That tells you where your vulnerabilities are. That is not a block checking exercise and it could drive appropriate action and if the process is streamlined and there's the right funds, you can knock down problems. So you got to ask yourself, what am I addressing when I do this legislation? And for me, it's really more at a practical level. It's down at the deck plate, to borrow another Navy term. It's about speeding things up through streamlining processes, making it easier to get out to commercial stuff and developing solid metrics that really measure your vulnerability. That inventorying system that you're talking about there and and the ability to quantify that sounds like something that would be uh, potentially a good candidate to put on the Fatara scorecard too, because if that's an outcome that we want to see the agencies drive, then it strikes me that would be desirable for Congress to know that the agencies are doing it and what level of success they're having doing it. I would agree, Francis. It would seem something that you would want to do. It's real time. It's accurate. And it's actionable. 
Excellent. John Zangardi, great to talk to you again, my friend. Thanks for coming on. Francis, always a pleasure. Take care, sir. You can read more about the cyber legislation in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. I'm Francis Rose, the host of the Daily Scoop podcast. Coming on Friday's show, the data deluge at the Office of Personnel Management and all over government. Ted Kalk, the chief data officer at OPM and the chair of the Chief Data Officers Council is here. That Daily Scoop podcast debuts Friday afternoon at fedscoop.com and wherever you get your shows. The Army calls its new climate strategy, quote, a roadmap of action that will enhance unit and installation readiness and resilience in the face of climate-related threats. The strategy includes several pillars that will drive it. John Congers, president of Congress Strategies and Solutions, he's senior advisor for the Council on Strategic Risks, former acting assistant secretary of defense for energy installations and environment. John, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. What do you see when you read the Army's climate strategy? What's here that's significant in your mind. Welcome. So, uh, thanks, thanks for having me. I think there's two things that jump out at me on first read. The first thing that I see is that the Army is very clear that its day job is still its day job. Its job is to fight and win wars. Climate change is going to make it harder. So how are they going to deal with that? And there's a variety of paths in, a, in those three pillars that uh, you alluded to um, that, that it's looking to accomplish that. And so, again, not a a diversion, but how does it do its job better? The second piece that jumps out is that where a lot of the previous DOD strategies have focused on resilience, and there's some of that in here, um, there is a a heavier proportion that's talking about how to reduce emissions in this particular plan than you see in a lot of the other uh, Department of Defense plans. And uh, that'll be interesting, and we can unpack that. Yeah, you pointed me to a uh, request for information from utilities you wrote about uh, the from the DoD about how much renewable energy they can supply. Yeah, this is this is strikes me as something that's not just an administration priority. It's not just something that uh, the agency's doing, the department's doing to check off a box or make somebody happy at the White House. This strikes me as a strategic effort to undertake something that it sees as important for the department five years from now and 10 years from now and 20 years from now. Am I reading it right, do you think? Yeah. Um, yes, but let me give you a little bit more detail. Okay. I, I, think, I think it's important to recognize that the security problems that come from climate change are not going to be fixed by the Department of Defense alone, right? So the Department of Defense and frankly, the federal government as a whole could go to zero emissions tomorrow and those security problems will still happen because everybody else has to come down too for them to be addressed. Um, that That's uh, sort of a leadership by example that they're doing in that context. That said, um, there are things you can do to lower your emissions that don't cost extra money, that increase capability, and there's no reason not to do those. Uh, In that context, for example, a lot of the renewable energy projects save you money. So why wouldn't you do that? That, That's the kind of thing that they're opening their eyes to and and dedicating some effort to in order to move in that direction. What's the progression look like in your view, John? What's the timeline look like for making these things happen in a way that results in some difference to the warfighter or results in some difference to the taxpayer? 
Right. I think you can uh, see some immediate benefits to the warfighter when you make yourself more resilient. So, so in the immediate term, there are things that are going to happen, natural disasters, extreme weather, uh, hotter, hot temperatures, and, and more access to the Arctic. There are things that are going to happen in the near term that we've already caused. And uh, there's no turning back on the next 10 or 20 years of changes. So we have to be able to deal with that. And that means if you make your base more resilient, that uh, then when the power goes out outside your base, you can still continue to operate and do your mission. Those are the, the, the nearest term changes that one can make in this context. Um, I think the other piece of this that's worth looking at is that there are going to be some changes that DOD isn't necessarily leading, but will ride. And so that's things like electric vehicles. Um, the major car companies have been very clear that by the 2030s, they're not gonna make combustion engines anymore. And it's all gonna be EVs. So if the mix of vehicles out there that's available to buy has is changing, then you have to adapt to that and hopefully in advance and not sort of in a rush, uh, you know, after it happens. So, so again, it's about making sure you have the capability to operate in the environment as it changes. You remind me that uh, the end of January saw an announcement from one of the major defense contractors that they are bringing out a hybrid electric uh, joint light tactical vehicle. So this is not conceptual for the military space this is happening now and i think your your observation about the car market is really valid i'm a classic car fiend i love muscle cars from the 60s and 70s and i saw not long ago that there's a company now i think in the midwest somewhere where they specialize in converting old Chevelles, old Mustangs, all of that to electrical vehicles, because this is the way that the world is going. And it strikes me that this climate strategy is a way for the army to say we're on board with that. You think that's fair? Yeah, I think it's fair. I think they're on board with it. There's, so there's a lot of uh, self-interest in, in, the, in the strategy. How do we adapt and how do we operate in this future environment? And, and make no mistake, there's a lot in here that's reflecting the White House executive order uh, that, that came out and said, we're going to go to hundred percent, uh, carbon, uh, you know, free electricity, you know, by 2030 in the federal government. Now that's another thing that you can do quickly, believe it or not. Um, you know, the, the, I I'll tell you a war story from the Obama administration real quick. Uh, the Navy decided that it was going to meet its, uh, one gigawatt renewable energy goal in six months. And uh, they had been a little bit behind and they, they were urged by their secretary to catch up really quickly. And so what they concluded was rather than building a lot of renewable energy projects on their own basis, they were gonna buy renewable energy in bulk and bundle it for a bunch of bases. And they were able to turn that around inside of six months, simply buying renewable energy and they got a price break. And they ended up lowering their utility bills by doing this. So, so there are near-term solutions, quick turnaround solutions that can be executed that simply lower the cost of doing business and meet the goals at the same time. What can civilian agencies learn, if anything, about their climate goals and their climate strategies 
from documents like the Army Climate Strategy. The President's Management Agenda lists climate as something that the civilian agencies should address too, and I'm not sure if they've thought about it in the degree that the military services have. Well, they're going to deal with it, right? So, but they all have different operations than the military services. Um, whether the, most of their buildings, most of the civilian agency buildings are uh, through GSA. So GSA is going to have to be the, the ones that, that deal with that particular problem set. And frankly, most of them, even the DOD, lease a lot of non-tactical vehicles from GSA. GSA is going to be a focal point of a lot of this activity. And, and they'll be able to work through this plan. They're already working through this plan. Um, you, you know, the, the fact that you can buy energy at lower prices, even if it's renewable, um, it is, is important. DOD has some authorities and civilian agencies don't. Um, DOD can buy renewable energy uh, with a 30-year power purchase agreement, and uh, that reduces the cost. The civilian agencies only have authority for 10 years. And, and so that dynamic gives, affords DOD a little bit more uh, advantage. Uh, but there are still things they can do. And I think that the key point to take away is it is synchronous with your mission and with your day job to worry about these things. This is about how do you do your job in the new way and continue to be more effective and to lower your costs. You wrote in this note that you sent me pointing me toward the uh, request for information I mentioned earlier. Uh, the, this is what you wrote. If last year was a planning year, there are high expectations that the administration will transition from plans to action soon. In that context, there are high hopes for the FY23 budget request. Uh, do you think that that's the determinant of what we see as the next step, whatever the budget request looks like regarding these issues, John? So um, strategy without budget is hallucination, right? <laughs> um, the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that budget does matter, but not everything in these plans costs money. There are so many zero cost decisions that you can make that, uh, that make you choose one, uh, one path as opposed to another and you make yourself more resilient. You build your buildings on higher ground and so on and so forth. In this budget request, I guarantee you there will be a lot of money labeled as climate funding. Now, it is important to recognize that climate funding is not necessarily stuff you weren't going to do anyway. It, they're going to go through their budget and say, well, this, this construction project would have made me more resilient. So I am going, I would have done it anyway, but I'm going to label it climate money. I, I'm going to make my aircraft engines more effective. That increases my uh, you know, range per unit of fuel, I'm going to label it as climate money because it lowers my, it increases my energy efficiency, but I was going to do it anyway. There are a lot of things in it. So you're going to have to read it carefully as you look forward. But that all said, focusing investments on the mission capabilities that increase resilience and that increase efficiency are really important. And if you are able to focus in the near term on those items, all geared towards mission capability, then you are going to set yourself up well for the long term. John Conger, thanks very much. Always terrific insight. Appreciate it. I'm happy to be here. You can find a link to the Army's climate strategy in today's show notes, thedailyscooppodcast.com. Federal agency back-to-office plans so far include a mix of in-office time and remote work time for lots of employees. 
But what you find when you go back to the office may look a lot different than it did before the pandemic. Dan Matthews is head of federal sales for WeWork. He's former commissioner of the Public Building Service at the General Services Administration. Dan, welcome. Thanks for coming on the program. I go to this from the Office of Inspector General at GSA. GSA will need to assess the effect of COVID-19 and future pandemics on the viability of the open space design concept. That says to me, if I read between the lines, that the viability of the open space design concept doesn't have much of a future. Am I reading too much into this work, Dan, or is there more to it than I even I'm thinking? Welcome. Well, first off, let me say thank you, Francis, for having me here today. It's great to join you again. And it's a it's a great question. I think it's a big, a big issue for government writ large. And I may have a little bit of an interesting twist, but I think in general, uh, there will be a huge potential for the government needing to reconfigure much of their floor space, the way it's laid out because of the pandemic. But perhaps the biggest reason isn't the pandemic. It really may be the change in how federal knowledge workers are using office space now. Mm. That's a real fundamental change. And it's going to drive, I think, a re a reconsideration of how f- space is laid out. And that's going to have implications. But I will say um, the pandemic has absolutely highlighted the need to prioritize health and safety going forward. And that's a good thing. Right, employees and landlords are far more conscious of these risks than they were in the past. And, and, and frankly, I think the government didn't pay enough attention to it before. And we had some mold in buildings in the past that were really problematic. And this is just going to be front and center going forward. You left PBS at the beginning of the pandemic. So you experienced that transition, and now you're seeing it from the other side. You referenced a moment ago uh, how federal uh, knowledge workers will work moving forward. What are you seeing in the private sector now as far as the way that knowledge workers are working that can apply to what federal leaders should think about moving forward? One thing that's really quite interesting, uh, if you look at what probably the, the most in-demand types of space layout and amenity space right now. Uh, CBRE just put out, uh, this week I think it was, a new report based on a tremendous amount of, of surveys and analytics. And really interesting, the most, the number one requested type of space is shared meeting space. Number two, flexible open space. Right, that seems to fly in the face of, of that IG comment. And I think what, what that really points to is the change in how office space is being used now. And in the government, it's probably even more pronounced in the private sector because so much of the government before the pandemic was operating on a paper-based process. It was a dedicated desk, a dedicated office, a file cabinet full of paper, they had to be sitting at that desk to get their work done. Um, as you mentioned, I was at PBS when the pandemic started. And so the government pretty much went full mandatory remote in March of 2020, if you could get the work done. Well, so many agencies couldn't get the work done. At GSA, we were literally purchasing thousands and thousands of laptops and mobile devices every month for those agencies that had a file cabinet full of paper at a desktop computer. Well, they don't have that now. Mm-hmm. They're actually, they're mobile enabled. And so that changes why they need to be in the office. 
And that's also true in the private sector, which is why I think you see this, this uh, survey result from CBRA. Flexible open space, number two, and what the most requested type of space is. And I thought this was interesting. Indoor air quality, uh, 63% versus 75% for flexible open space, 78% for shared meeting space. Who should the stakeholders be that are deciding what my agencies or my organization's workspace looks like moving forward? Who are all the people that should be at that meeting, be in that meeting, be at that table, Dan? Well, I think it's more than just the real estate folks. Yep. In fact, it really has to be the employees need to have a significant say in the matter. Um, the great resignation is real. The federal workforce is aging. Uh, there's always a challenge to find and, and attract and retain talent in the federal government. And right now, employees like flexibility and choices about when and where they work. And so they have to have a significant seat at the table. Uh, obviously, the real estate folks need to be there um, to help suggest how do you solve for problems like that. And then, of course, the, the HR folks and the, the, the financial. So it's, it's money. It's procurement, and it's the end user. Right? Those are the, the three players. I call your attention again to this Inspector General report from GSA. GSA, in close coordination with affected tenant agencies, will need to assess facilities with open space floor plans and make the necessary adjustments to ensure compliance with all protocols necessary to combat the spread of COVID-19. How much flexibility will agencies have to deal with covid Say if we're only dealing with the implications of this pandemic for the next six months or year or 18 months, then that maybe trends away and we go to endemic status like we do with the flu every year. How much flexibility does an agency have to then go back to something maybe more similar to what we experienced before the pandemic or go to some new model that we haven't even thought about yet? Yeah, I think the reality is we don't know and we're not going to know a light bulb's not going to turn on in six months. That's not going to happen. It's going to, there's going to be a period of time where uncertainty rules the day. And in that, uh, in that situation where you don't really know, because it's not just about health and safety, it's also about the new capabilities for getting work done, the struggle to attract and retain talent, the choices that employees have, the choices that they desire, and quite likely, probably a tightening of budgets in the near future. If you look into the political crystal ball, it's pretty natural. After a large spending period, you see a contraction in federal spending. That's, that's probably coming. And so there are going to be all sorts of pressures on agencies, um, both financial, talent, mission. And I think that's going to create uncertainty, at least for, for a few years. And then in that environment, uh, what real estate solutions need to have a degree of flexibility built into it. And right now, the federal government tends to rely on two types of real estate solutions. They own it, right, which is the least flexible of all solutions possible and the most capital intensive. And they are very capital constrained. So if you want to reconfigure that floor plate and you only have so much capital, you can't do it everywhere. There just isn't enough money to do it. Um, Leasing is the other big solution, and that can be useful if you have a high degree of certainty that at least for the next five, six, seven years, you know you're going to be able to fill that building, you know how you want to configure it. In that situation, leasing is a great solution, 
and it's on sale right now. Um, but but I think we're going to have a higher degree of uncertain of a portion of the requirement that they're just not going to know, and they need to experiment, try different things, distributed work, like a hub and spoke model, or all sorts of different things that we are seeing in the marketplace now, where companies are basically experimenting for the next couple of years. They're putting off really long-term decisions because they just don't know, and they know it will evolve as well. Dan Matthews, great to talk to you. Thank you very much for coming on today. Thanks, Francis. Appreciate it. You can read that GSA Inspector General report in today's show notes at thedailyscooppodcast.com. The Daily Scoop podcast is available on all the podcast platforms. If you've already rated the show on your platform of choice, thanks for doing that. High ratings and good reviews of the show help more people find it. The Daily Scoop podcast is a production of the Scoop News Group in Washington, D.C. James Mahoney helps me put the show together every day, and the entire Scoop News Group team contributes. Tomorrow, the Chief Data Officer at OPM, Ted Kalk. Until then, I'm Francis Rose. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.